Hello, my name is Joanna Quinn. I'm the author of The Whalebone Theatre. It's my debut novel. I've been eagerly awaiting the release of Joanna Quinn's novel, The Whalebone Theatre, ever since a friend of mine insisted that I read it, and he's never led me astray. This recommendation was no exception. Quinn's debut novel follows young Christabel Seagrave as she builds a theater among the bones of a washed-up whale and comes of age during the gap between World War I and World War II. I recently spoke with Joanna Quinn about her compelling cast of characters, how her work experience influenced her writing, and the education that reading can provide. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. I feel like October 4th is a date that finally showed up because I've been waiting for the release of the Whalebone Theater for about eight months now. It's It's been that long since a friend of mine from Random House told me I needed to read it. He said a colleague described it like this. It's a wonderful example of the barely parented children in a crumbling English manor house genre. And we both got a, a big kick out of that description, but I, I imagine you can do better. So could you give our listeners a, a brief <laughs> overview of the novel? I don't know. I don't think I can do better than that. <laughs> That's pretty much it. That is what it is. Only I would only add barely parented children in a crumbling English manor by the sea who find a big whale on the beach and turn its bones into a theatre and then go to war. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's it, really. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's kind of a big family saga, really, that goes from the end of the First World War to the end of the Second World War. And you see the time periods that, that, that it covers. So you get the sort of, well, you get the sort of very dark time immediately coming after the First World War, then the Bohemian 1920s, and then moving into the sort of the darkness of the 30s and the 40s and the war. And as you said, there are unparented children, three of them, two girls and a boy, who are sort of related. <laughs> it's, a it's, a it's a blended family. It's a complicated family. And they basically run wild in a big manor house in Dorset, which is where I live. It's on the south coast of England, overlooking the channel. Yeah, they their parents invite a sort of host of interesting and eccentric house guests to the house. So there's... They're trying very hard to be bohemian. So there's there's um, an, a Russian artist, there's an American poet, there's various sort of artistic hangers-on. And these kind of add to the air of creativity, I suppose, at the house and encourage the children to try and become artistic and more theatrical. And then you follow them as they get older and the different paths that their lives take as, as war comes along in the 40s. Because, you know, we don't want to give anything away. We we try to avoid spoilers, and, and I'm probably going to dance around a bit, <laughs> maybe talking about characterization and structure and craft instead of plot. Okay. And I want to talk a little bit about the structure of the book. As you mentioned, there's like this dramatic shift in the middle where they go from being children to being part of, of the Second World War. I want to talk about instead how the book is set up with five acts, much like a Shakespearean play. So talk to me about that decision of how to structure the book. Yes, I, I originally I thought it was going to be in three parts, but it just kept getting away from me. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it wasn't even my idea. It was a very clever friend of mine said, put it in five acts, like a Shakespearean play. And I just really liked that idea because the theatre is is such a, a theme. Theatre and, and sort of role play is such a theme through the book. There's the idea that, well, the children always put on their own shows when they're young and these get sort of more and more professional as they get older. But also there's the idea of having to perform certain roles in life, whether you're going to be the heir to the estate or his beautiful wife, those require you to be certain types of people acting certain ways, and you might not want to be those people. And then later on, when when the war comes again, 
sort of dodging the spoilers slightly, but there are characters who end up working undercover during the Second World War. So again, that's an idea of pretending to be someone that you're not. So I just love the thread of theatricality through the book. (laughs) You know, I also liked the way that the structure of your story mirrored the prose at times, like when Maudie is telling Christabel how a story doesn't always have to go from beginning to end. And the next chapter takes place 30 years earlier, and we get some insight into the life of Jasper as a young man. Now, is this how the novel came together as we read it, or did you find yourself writing and rearranging bits? A little bit of both. I'm really glad that you noticed that bit where Maudie talks about stories not always going in a certain order, and then I jump around in the text. Because I, they, that sort of thing, just that playfulness within text is something I really enjoy as a reader. And it sort of gives me, it's fun when I can see an opportunity to do it within my own book, because I'm always trying to, um, I think because I was aware that a lot of people have written crumbling manor house stories and a lot of people have written uh, semi-parented children's stories. I was always trying to find a way to make it a little bit more original, a little bit more entertaining. And playing with the text is one of the ways that I do that. Initially, the stuff about Jasper's childhood, which we see in a kind of a flashback, was at the beginning of the book, but it didn't work quite so well. So there were times where I moved chunks around as well. Well, I really loved being able to, you know, to see him as this man who brought home a mother for his future heir. But then I loved being able to see, the, you know, to see the real him when he met Annabelle. And uh, I just I really appreciated the fact that you did that. So I was struck by how some of your barely parented characters, both um, <laughs> Christabel and also her father, Jasper, when he was a boy, how much they were educated through reading you know, not only Shakespeare, but also the Iliad, the Odyssey, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, Robin Hood. So talk to me about the power of literature. It can be informative, but, you know, are there disadvantages to having reading as your main form of education, other than not being able to pronounce words correctly, (laughs) like happens to me? It happens to me, too. You you know the meaning of them, but you have no idea how you say them out loud. I think, well, for both Jasper and Christabel and semi-parented children throughout history books are companions and they're friends and they're they're really really important but for both of them because they don't have adult role models either of them really they're forming their idea of the world through the books that they read and this is they feel that they should be certain things in order to take part in a world that they've perceived of through books so Jasper who's reading very sort of gung-ho Victorian boys adventure stories believes he should be brave he should be a soldier he should be doing work of the British Empire that's the lessons that he takes from the books that he reads and Christabel reads the same books although it's slightly complicated for her because she's a girl (laughs) so she has to has to sort of do a strange twisting herself inside out almost imaginatively to take part in these books I think they give them for Jasper, maybe it, it sends him in a wrong direction and makes him think he should be things that he isn't. For Christabel, I think those characteristics are more part of her personality, but she's going to hit some walls when she tries to be a heroic warrior in, in real life. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, perhaps it was because of this reading of fiction that informed their lives. The children seem to be prone to, you know, drama and active imagination and maybe a little bit of overacting. And you might have alluded to this a little bit earlier, but they weren't the only ones acting. You know, one of the conversations I found quite curious was when Christabel was planning the performance of the Iliad with Terrace and his crew. And and Hilly said, I rather suspect Rosalind will want to be the center stage once she hears there's a show on. Rosalind can't act, says Christabel. Oh, I think she can, replies Hilly. So talk to me about Rosalind's acting, not in the professional sense, but perhaps in her personal life. 
Yeah, so Rosalind is the new young bride at my fictional manor house. Um, she's come in age 20, married to a much, much older man, primarily because pretty much everybody else she was going to marry has been killed in the First World War. But she has no other options. She's pretty much trapped in... She wouldn't have had an education. Her social class would have meant that her one job basically was to get married and do it quickly. So she's she's ended up a young wife to a man she's not that keen on. But she's desperate to be a society hostess because she's seen images of that kind of person in the magazines that she reads, women's magazines at the time, were often filled with sort of black and white photographs of people entertaining on the lawns of their grand houses. And that's what she wants to do. So she's playing a role or she's trying to play a role. And that's partly why she's invited all these artists to the house, because she thinks that's the kind of thing that sort of person would do. So she's constantly trying to be the magazine version of herself. She's trying to be a bright young thing. So she's she's never really genuine, I don't think. But that's not really her fault. What <laughs> <laughs> is what she's been, a bit like Jasper, Jasper believing he should be charging across Africa with a musket. She thinks she should be having a party with a cocktail glass and being witty and wonderful. <laughs> you know, for a novel that is so rich and has such depth, I mean, you have some compelling main characters, but you also provide your secondary characters and maybe even like third level characters. You give them reasons for existence beyond just being part of the supporting cast. You know, in literature, I don't often notice when this doesn't happen, but I do notice when it does. Can you talk to me about the importance of these lives? You let everyone have a complexity. You refuse to let anyone be a one note. So is that intentional with your writing? I mean, how well do you know each of your characters? I think it's something that I worked on going through the novel because it does have a big cast. And like I said, I'm aware that this is familiar fictional turf to be treading on. There are big house stories. So you're always aware of those sort of characters that have come before you, like Jasper, the grumpy patriarch is fairly familiar. So it's important to me that you then see the other side of him and understand why he's grumpy. And so even the, say, the staff at the house or the guests at the house who sort of come in and out, I never wanted them to be flat ciphers. I wanted you to feel like they were human beings or it risks becoming just sort of two-dimensional parade of stereotypes. (laughs) And I didn't want that to happen. I wanted you to know that they were as human as I could make them. I noticed that in some of the reviews I read, reviews mainly from the UK release in June, that they made reference to this being your debut novel and they wondered where you've been and how you could come out of the gate with such a powerful first novel. And I'm not saying you're old, but this type of hype is typically reserved for like some 22-year-old phenom. And when I looked up your bio, I discovered that you've worked in journalism and in the charity sector as well as teaching creative writing. And you've also had some short stories published, correct? Yeah. So how long did you work on the Whalebone Theater? And do you think that some of your life experiences helped to make this debut so rich? Yeah, well, I've always kind of had writing. I've always I've written since I was a kid. I wrote short stories when I was very young and drew my own comic books and things like that. But I always had to work as well. So I've kind of had like a parallel life where my day job has gone on one strand and my writing life has gone on the other so I've always had to try and balance the two and I've used like my day job to pay for courses writing courses and I've done a master's and things like that so I've always been sort of trucking along doing the two things at the same time and I wrote short stories I think primarily because that was all the time I had when I was in my 20s and 30s 
But I always wanted to write a novel because they're my favourite reading experience. And I basically signed up to do a PhD in creative writing in order to force myself to do a novel because I work best when someone else has given me a deadline. Otherwise, I thought it's, it's just going to drift on forever and ever. But it still took a long time because I still had a job and I had a daughter and I didn't get it right the first time I tried it. I think I had three goes at it before I got it to a state where it was trucking along quite nicely. So I don't ever feel, though I think maybe some people have gone, oh, who's this person come from nowhere with a novel? I feel like I've always been working on it, just in small chunks. <laughs> so it's more like, um, yeah, it's, it's testament to that whole thing. If you just keep building it, <laughs> they will come eventually. Just um, It just takes a long time, particularly when you've got other jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think there is a value in taking a long time over something because a lot of the ideas which seem very fundamental to it now, like having a whale in it, weren't actually in it at the beginning. They came as I went along. So I don't think I would have had that if I'd, if I'd gone fast and furious and done it in a few years. I think it's um, like a wine or something. It matured over time. <laughs> you know, as you wrote the description of that whale that had come up onto the beach and died, I mean, I could see it, but I had no idea I'd never seen a whale like that. And then I did see a photo in one of the reviews that came out a few months ago. So was that what inspired this whale? I mean, I've never seen a whale like that before. Uh, Well, it happens more than you would think, weirdly. uh, There's a place where I used to live in um, Dorset called Bournemouth, which is just along the coast, not far. And there was a whale that washed up there, sort of the turn of the century, 1900. And it was a blue whale, so it was massive. And there's a display on the pier in there, which shows you pictures of the whale. So I had that in my head. And I kind of, it was really interesting because once it washed up and everyone was very excited about it and they a bit, I basically steal the story a little bit from my book, but it became a bit of a tourist attraction. People came from miles to see it. But when a whale starts to rot, it becomes increasingly unpleasant to be around. <laughs> so it very quickly becomes quite a dangerous health hazard and nobody knows what to do with it because it's a big rotting mass of whale flesh on your beach. So I, that was that was in my head already. But I also read um, a really good nonfiction book by the writer Bella Barthurst. It's called The Wreckers. And it's all about shipwrecks and the coast of the UK. And in that, she has this fact that if a whale washes up on an English beach, it's owned by the monarch by right, which is, and apparently it still stands, this law. It does still stand. And I just loved that fact. Um, so the, the image of the rotting whale on the beach, plus that it's being owned by the king by right, just sort of clicked together quite nicely in my head. And I had the whale. <laughs> and what type of whale was it? I mean, I'm used to seeing like maybe it's the blue whale where I perceive the mouth as being on the bottom, but this was the opposite. Was that right? Yeah, I, I chose a slightly smaller whale. Mine's a fin whale, okay. which has quite a distinctive, if you Google stranded fin whale, you'll see what I mean. But it has quite a distinctive sort of flat lidded kind of upper part. Yeah. But yeah, it's slightly smaller. I didn't go for the, for the huge one. So as I mentioned, a lot of the reviews I read of your book were from the UK release, which happened in June. So how is it having to do all of this over again with the release in the United States? It's really fun. It's really fun. It's different because, well, there are lots of the stuff doing radio interviews as well. And because, I mean, I know that you know America is big, <laughs> but I was saying <laughs> it's kind of, you kind of forget how big it is because all, all the different states seem to have their different radio programs and their different, different media. It's like the UK, but like multiplied. <laughs> So, yeah, it's really fun. It's really exciting. And I think I guess as well, I didn't know because mine is set in England is about English people. I wasn't ever really sure whether it was going to be welcomed anywhere else or people would be interested in anywhere else. So it's really exciting to have American readers. Yeah. 
I also really appreciated, I think it was on your website, you had a playlist that went along yeah. with so many of the scenes. I loved that. And how, yeah. how fun was that putting that together? That was great. And I would quite often do that. Well, I think possibly a bit of a procrastination, really. It was just like, oh, I'll go make my, my playlist. I'm working on my novel. But it was also really fun. And it is quite nice to try and think about the music that's playing at the parties that you're writing about and what goes on the gramophone when they have the musical evenings during the war. And, and uh, yeah, that was really fun. So are you working on anything right now that you're willing to talk about? <laughs> because... well, when, I, <laughs> when I was researching the Wellbone Theatre, I came across a tiny little fact and I thought, oh, that's interesting. I'll come back to that. And I put it to one side and I think there's a germ of a story in there. And I'm just starting the process of piling up research books. So it's roughly the same sort of time, but it's not it's not an English story. It's a different country. But yeah, so I'm just thinking it's just gestating at the minute. <laughs> Well, I visited with that same friend just this morning, and we both agree that your novel is like nothing we've ever read, but at the same time, it feels so familiar. It is such an enjoyable read. The book is The Whalebone Theater. Joanna Quinn, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a treat. That was Joanna Quinn, author of the book The Whalebone Theater, which was published by Knopf. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editor is Luann Stevens. Our producer is Haley Krausen. And our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia. And for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.